Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got really special treat because we have with us Kayla Chiquello, who is an agent at Upstart Crow Literary. Kayla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to have you. We've spoken to a few agents before and each time it's like capturing a rare unicorn. So on that happy note, Kayla, what is your origin story as far as becoming a literary agent? Did you always know this job existed? It was something you always kind of wanted to do. How did this come about? I kind of knew in the peripheral what an agent was, but going through school and college, I didn't know that that was going to be my ultimate career path. I ended up working for SCBWI, the headquarters in Los Angeles, shortly after college, where I worked with the fabulous Lynn Oliver and Kim Teresi and Sarah Baker. And I really just got an incredible education and overview of how children's publishing worked. And with that, I worked at the summer conference in LA and the New York conference in the winter. And I was able to meet editors and agents and writers and illustrators. And just sort of over the years, I I made connections with different people. And a couple years into working for SCBWI, as much as I loved working there and all the people I worked with, I felt like there was just something more calling to me. And at one of the conferences, I was Speaking with Jennifer Rofe, she's an agent at Andrea Brown Literary Agency, and she said to me, you know, if you really want to see what an agent does, why don't you come to my house for an afternoon? They work from home. Why don't you come over and see what an agent does on a random day? Let me show you. I said, okay, great. So I went over to her house for a few hours. She was kind enough to kind of give me a peek into what she does. And from that afternoon, I was completely hooked on agenting. I loved every aspect of it. So about a year or so later, there was an opportunity to actually become Jennifer's assistant. So I jumped at that and I worked with her for about three years. And then I was able to join Upstart Crow Literary in 2020, right in the midst of a pandemic. And that's kind of how I got where I am today. Wow. Okay. Follow-up questions. In case anyone's listening, who doesn't know, hasn't heard yet, SCBWI is Society for Children's Books Writers and Illustrators. It's a big organization where all kinds of people can be part of and get lots of resources and connect with each other and network and be part of local chapters and much, much going on, which is actually how I'm speaking to Kayla now because there's an event at the SoCal chapter that that's how we got the hookup. But how did you even know about SCBWI? That was completely serendipitous. I was actually on a recreational softball team with Lynn Oliver's son, one of her sons. I was new to the Los Angeles area, and I was looking for a job, and I was an English major. And so he said to me, you know, I think my mom's office is hiring a receptionist or an admin. You should apply. It sounds like something in the field that you want to be in. That's how I learned about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. It completely changed my life. Basically, everyone's running now to sign up for softball teams. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You never know who you're going to meet on a recreational softball team. (laughs) Wow. You did mention that you were an English major, so you sort of always had a thing for the written word, I guess we could kind of say it like that. Okay. Yes. And like all English majors, I would say the career paths 
can be small coming out of college. It's typically either, oh, do you want to be an English teacher? Right. Or <laughs> what are you going to do with an English degree? Oh, do you want to be a writer or a journalist? Something that I would love to do in the future is actually go and speak to college students and let them know, hey, there's this whole other world of publishing jobs you can enter, which I think a lot of college kids do know about kind of the editorial side. I don't know how many know about the path to agenting. I certainly didn't. I know there are editorial internships available, but when I was in college, I didn't know that that was an option. So any college students listening, I encourage you to seek out editorial internship. If you want to answer, did you ever think that you'd actually be writing one day? Did you sort of think like, oh, I wish I could be a writer. And then you start trying to write and you're like, never mind, this is not my path. Or it was just more just like being surrounded by words and books and things like that. I had that ambition for a while to try and be a writer, but it's just not, it's yeah, not okay. in the cards for me. I quickly realized I like working with writers much more than being a writer. That's fair. What's some of the things that I were clearly remember when you first started with the agenting? What's some of the things that kind of surprised you about, oh, I didn't know they did this. Hmm. Even not surprised, it was just, oh, that's what agents do? Okay, cool. Ah, okay, so one of the things that I think is so interesting is learning the language of contract yeah. because it is a completely different language and it's so important. And as an agent, that's one of our main responsibilities is going through contracts and making sure that a client is getting a fair deal and working as the client's advocate and always kind of seeing, I guess what I love about it is there's always things that are changing in publishing and in contracts, and you always kind of should be looking for places that, as an agent, that you can get your client a little bit better language here, or, oh, maybe we can clarify something here. So it's really just interesting how many different clauses there are when you're working with a publisher and just seeing all the different aspects that they are thinking about going into a contract and what you and your client should be thinking about as well. So I didn't know, I think, going into it, how intense contracts can be and how specific. So that was something that was surprising. And it takes a while to kind of learn everything that you kind of should be looking for in a contract and that sort of thing. Yeah, and no writer wants to have to deal with that. So. No writer, I know, exactly right, because it's so exciting to get a contract for your work. So you think, okay, I'm just going to sign this. Sometimes that's the right thing to do, but I would say if you can have an agent look through a contract, that's part of our job, and we might be able to get you a little bit better terms or language that just helps protect you and the rights to your story a little bit better. Right. Well, this is going to be kind of based on your experience, what you've seen. And I don't know if there's a clear answer for this, but have you seen that a lot of contracts, kind of the core of it is basically the same. It's kind of like a standard that they give. And then the differences come in the details of it. Or is every contract really completely different? Kind of the bare bones are, are always the same, if not very similar. And then you're just talking about kind of the detailed language. Each publisher has their own language that they like to use. And it's just very different from house to house as to the details of each clause. Right. So kind of just randomly throwing out there, what are some things that someone can see in a contract? Is it how many books are published in the first print run? 
Are the royalty rates kind of always the same or those can differ greatly if it goes from hardcover to paperback? Are these all the kinds of things that we see in a contract? They are. The print run, there's no specific number that a publisher will typically put in a contract just because they don't know at the time that they're acquiring the exact number they're going to print. That comes much later down the line. But yes, talking about royalty rates, what rights the publisher is asking for versus what rights the author illustrator is going to keep, those sorts of things. The royalty rates can vary. Not something that an agent helps with as well. And also in terms of what you can do once the publisher acquires your work. So in terms of if you're an illustrator, what images can you post from the book using copyright issues, that sort of thing. There's a lot of different clauses in a contract usually, but really just it's more about what is the publisher asking of you and your work. They will put tentative dates of when things will be published, that sort of thing. Yeah. Obviously, this all has to be covered somewhere, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily have the visual of where it's covered. It doesn't arbitrarily happen. There's a framework for all this. Exactly. Yes. And it requires a lot of legal language to go through. So one more tactical question. When you're talking about the rights of the book, it's not a matter of ownership. It's a matter of how long they have the right to print it. Or like you said, how much you're allowed to show ahead of it being. So, yes. So I like to think about rights like a bunch of grapes. So you, as the writer or illustrator, you have the bunch of grapes and you're selling that bunch of grapes to a publisher. But the publisher is going to pick off certain grapes and leave you some. And so that is also something an agent helps with as well is what grapes you're going to keep and then what grapes the publisher is going to acquire. So in terms of rights, we're talking about foreign rights, for an example, right? Typically, a publisher is going to acquire foreign rights. And that can be to your benefit because a publisher has an entire team that's going to work to sell your book abroad instead of you keeping that grape and you trying to sell your work to each country. So there are benefits to having a publisher acquire certain rights. On the flip side, you probably want to keep dramatic rights, which includes movie rights. You know, if you get your book turned into a TV show or movie or online forum, it's advantageous for you to keep those rights because there's more money involved for you. It's really just going through and determining which rights to sell to a publisher and which rights should you keep for your own use to sell. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. That just also goes to show how much more there is to it than just here's your paper, sign it. Right, exactly. As an agent, would you say it's kind of 50%, you could say literary as in going through books or looking at queries or anything like that, and 50% business, or is it way more business than people realize, like with the contracts and things like that? I think 50-50 is probably a fair assessment. It can really vary on the day or the week, the month. Sometimes it's very business heavy. Sometimes I'm mainly looking at queries and client work and doing editorial notes. So it really does vary day to day, but probably a general split is is probably 50-50. For queries. This is what everyone's waiting to hear about, right? Yes, uh, exactly. (laughs) From what I've heard or what I know, agents get four bazillion queries a week. How do you deal with that? What do you do about that? How do you go through them? 
So I really try hard to go through queries at least twice a week. And really, it's just about scheduling and making sure I'm sticking to that schedule. Um, but there are a lot of queries to go through. And honestly, I have to prioritize my clients first and then queries second. So it just depends on my workload week to week from my clients as to how much time I'm actually spending looking at queries and reading requested manuscripts. But I do try and keep up with it weekly just because it helps my work workload and stress level to keep the numbers down a little bit. With that said, I will say for me personally, I cannot respond to every single query that I get just because I simply don't have time. I think this is true for most agents. Unfortunately, there's just not enough hours in the day. Um, I know that's disheartening um, to people who are submitting queries, but it's just usually not possible. Um, my general guidelines are that if you submit a query to me and you don't hear anything from me, Within about eight to 10 weeks, maybe 12 weeks, it's usually a pass. So just keep that in mind when you're querying, whether it's me or any other agent. Um, and definitely always read submission guidelines that are posted on an agency's website. I think also a lot of writers kind of panic when it comes to writing the query letter because query letters, it's like a synopsis also. Writers, they're just like a brain freeze. For so many of them, it's like, what do you mean I have to write things in short now? I just wrote the whole book. Why do I have to write a short version of it? But for you, the query letter, are you really, really looking at how perfect it is? Or as long as it's following submission guidelines, the general idea is there. Sample pages is really where it's at. Kind of a mix of both. For me, it's a mix of both because the query letter is getting me excited and prepped for those sample pages. So I really appreciate a well-crafted query letter. And I actually just did an entire workshop about this at the SCBWI summer conference. So for me, the query letter is important and essential that it's written well because it is that introduction to your story. It's prepping me for what's to come in the sample pages. It's getting me excited to read your work. So it is important. This might not be the right language, but cleanly written is probably one of the first things to aim for. And then you can worry about kind of spicing it up or something. Yes. For general guidelines, I like to know up front the genre, the word count, what hooks you think are in the story, and just a sentence or two summarizing the story. A query letter can be very brief. The pitch, especially when you're pitching your story in a query letter, it shouldn't be paragraphs going on and on. It doesn't have to be a full-length synopsis. Just give me the quick and dirty version of what your story's about, and then I can dive into those sample pages. I also love to know in a query letter a little bit about you. Don't skip the bio. The bio is important. I want to know, are you involved in groups like SCBWI? Do you go to conferences or are you part of online workshops like Highlights Foundation has a lot? Stuff like that. And then I also love to know about you personally. Are you a stay-at-home mom of four kids? Or are you an engineer by day and a writer by night? Give me a little taste of who you are and where you're coming from. For the query, saying that could be brief and things like that, it's kind of like, what's the punchline of the story? And then what sort of makes your story a little bit different? 
than everybody else. Exactly. Yes. Okay. You have to have your focus, right? Because if you lose sight of the focus, you just end up all over the place. Right. I'm looking for concise summary of your work. I'm going to read all these fabulous details in the sample pages. So don't worry about getting too detailed in the query summary section. I think also sometimes people think, well, there's 12 twists in my story. How can I tell you about all 12 twists? Or I'm not going to tell right. you because I'm not surprised. Exactly. I want to be surprised. So don't give away the ending in your summary. Leave some intrigue. Leave that cliffhanger so that I want to immediately dive into those pages. And then also about the sample pages, because it's a couple pages. You can't, someone can't send a whole manuscript for you to go through. Some of the basic things you're looking at is... How much of it is technical and how much of it as in flow, good spelling, grammar, blah, 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 versus something exciting must be happening in these first 10 pages kind of thing? For me, it's a mix of both. Obviously, you want to present your best work. So I'm not going to fault you for grammatical errors, but you always want to go through your work one last time before hitting send. Really, I am looking for voice. Do I connect to this character? Do I care about this character and the journey they're about to go on? And what is at stake for this character? If we're talking about picture books, I'm going to read the entire picture book that you're submitting because picture books aren't that long. So for picture books, it's more about, is this kid friendly enough? Do I want to read this story over and over again? Because that is something that editors and kids are always looking for. Does it have that multiple reads appeal? Is it unique? Do I get kind of a fresh perspective? So there are multiple things I'm looking for with picture books. But generally, I am looking for voice, characterization, and we're talking about older readers. Do I want to go on this journey? It's funny. It seems, well, I'll say it's funny, but there's not really anything to do about the fact that a lot of it is the technical part, but a lot of it is just you getting the sense of, yeah, this is going to be right for me. Kind of thing. Exactly. It's more of just this internal feeling of, oh, you know, I really connect to this character. I'm ready to go on this journey. Give me the stakes up front. That's something that's really important because you do want to hook your reader within that first kind of chapter or two. Anything you read that has great commercial appeal, it's going to hook you within that first or second chapter. So I'm always looking for that. And again, leave me that bit of intrigue. Is there something that's going to make me say, you know what, I have to know what happens next. So I'm going to request the full manuscript of this. 20 pages is not enough. I've got to know what happens next. Which I actually read a middle grade query yesterday where I said that exact thing to myself and I immediately requested the full because I just have to know what is going to happen. Oh, amazing. amazing. <laughs> also, when you say commercial appeal, as much as there's like a definition of it, how much of that is also just like a gut business sense? Or what does it even mean, com commercial appeal? Commercial appeal is going to be something that's, I would say, more mainstream. So you have kind of technically two categories. You've got literary on one side and you've got commercial on the other. Commercial is going to be more of that mass appeal. Think Harry Potter, Hunger Games, The Bad Guys is a, another recent one. Something that just has mass appeal and that technically is typically going to sell a lot of copies. I mean, that's kind of the dream on either side, you yeah. want to sell a lot of copies, yeah, but exactly. more commercial book publishers, it's more about sales Where versus I think literary is kind of skews more towards the award side of things. It's a little bit geared more towards garnering those awards and you have kind of a more prestigious 
appeal to it. The writing is probably a little bit more detail-oriented and that sort of thing. At a publisher, you have imprints. So different imprints, I think, skew one way or the other, typically. There's obviously, they want a mix of both, but certainly some imprints skew one way versus the other. Not saying it's absolutely, but it's almost like commercial appeal might be easier to convince a reluctant reader to read. And like literary... Exactly, yes. That you need like a real reader to appreciate the literary sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I think a good example of literary is books that win the Newbery typically skew a little bit more on the literary side. Right. Sometimes there's something more lyrical about them or something they're just like, wow, you could tell there's something different about the writing of it. Yes. You can't really say in your query, like, this is a book of great commercial appeal. I think everybody wants to think that. Right, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wouldn't get bogged down in that sort of language in a query letter. Okay. I would say just focus on concisely describing your story and let me know what... When I say hooks, especially for picture books, it's really important to have hooks or takeaways, themes, lessons, these are all words for hooks in your story, not only for your audience, but editors as well. They are looking for multiple hooks in a picture book. And, you know, if you can't think of any themes or lessons for your picture book, maybe that is saying something to you and you need to reconsider or see if you can revise and maybe there's a more complex level you can add to the story. One example I like to give, because I think a lot of people think, well, my picture book's funny, so there's not a lesson to it. It's just funny. It's just fun for kids. Dragons Love Tacos, a very successful picture book. That's a very silly book. And it also has multiple hooks. It is about listening, following directions, and consequences for your actions. So those are three hooks in a very silly picture book. So if you think that you don't have any hooks because your book is silly or funny, think again (laughs) and see what themes you can come up with. And again, if you're struggling and you just think there are no takeaways for this, then maybe you need to revise or maybe set that story aside and and write something else. Would you say, and I've only just thought about this now, so it could be like things finally clicked. You know, sometimes at the back of the book, there's often this kind of punchline that offers a contradiction of like, can she save her family, but still keep to her values sort of thing? Right. That's hook. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, that's a great example. That is both what's at stake for the character, the emotional struggle and the hooks. Right, like she has to scale the mountain, but she's afraid of heights sort of thing. Or like, Right, exactly. Anything... That's overcoming a fear or obstacle, right? Uh, yay, it finally clicked. <laughs> Big moment here occurring. Right? Yay, <laughs> the light bulb is on. Yeah, well, you kind of subconsciously know that it's there. And when you're a reader and you pick it up, you're always looking for that. But I think sometimes you might just end up glossing through it. You don't realize that like, no, there's a, there's a structure even to this. Identifiable parts going on, even in a blurb or something. Exactly. And and a good way to kind of research this or, or practice it is to look at the picture books or the books that you love or your children love and think about what are the takeaways in these stories that I or my children love so much. Right. Well, I guess it could even help even from the flip side of read the backs of a bunch of books. And if any of those hooks kind of feel like, oh, I've seen this before or whatever, 
even if you're only saying it, think if your story would be boiled down to that, oh, great, I better go back and make it a little bit more unique or something. Right, yes. That always look at other books in the market and see what are the hooks in those stories and if they can apply to your story or help you decide what hooks are in your story. That's an excellent way to go about it. Right. If you got 17 of them, they probably have to narrow your focus too. (laughs) Right, exactly. And the opposite side, do not give me the kitchen sink full of (laughs) hooks. Only the ones that really make sense to your story and apply to your story. And then also just because we spoke about in general, you specifically, what are the kind of stories, things that you're looking for? So a detailed list of what I'm looking for is up on the Upstart Crow literary website. In general, I'll hit the kind of categories I'm looking for. I'm open to picture books through YA. That includes graphic novels, some nonfiction. I don't typically rep nonfiction. I am open to it if it's something that really grabs my attention, which would be, I know everyone's looking for an untold story in history, but just something that's really unique and maybe it speaks not only to the past, but to the present and some of the issues that this generation is facing and that could connect back to an older generation. I do love history, and I think it is so important to kind of look back at what happened in the past and see how it does connect to present day. So that can be a person, that can be an event, anything like that. And also something with kind of universal appeal. It's great to have stories about local heroes, but is that going to appeal across the United States and and even globally? Something to think about. So picture books. I do love a funny picture book, but it's got to have a takeaway. I think in picture books, I'm really looking to be surprised. And is there a fresh perspective? It's really easy to think, oh, this story is unique and there's not another one out there. But have you gone to a bookstore? Have you gone to a library and looked at the picture books that are out there? I always love a surprising ending. So if you can surprise me in a picture book, then I'm going to be hooked. Something unexpected. I also love to hear voices that are either underrepresented or I haven't heard before. If I'm learning about a culture or an event that I don't know about, I always love learning about those in picture books. The general takeaway would be, "Mm, surprise me. I know that's a very vague description. (laughs) But I think if you can come up with a fresh perspective or a surprising ending, that's something I'm always looking for in picture books. In middle grade, I tend to skew more contemporary. I do love magical realism and action adventure. I'm not a big fantasy person, so I do tend to skew more contemporary. Stories like Stand Up Yumi Chung is a good example. The Year the Swallows Came Early. One that I've recently read that I love, love, love is The Year I Flew Away. That has a magical realism element that's done really well. In terms of YA, I love contemporary. I love a good rom-com, but give me a fresh take on the YA tropes, the enemies to lovers, the friends to lovers. Give me something that I haven't seen before. With YA especially, I think I'm in the middle of literary and commercial. I kind of like that in-between space. Some examples, I will tell you the YA that it is my favorite YA that I have read And I am looking for this in queries. If you can be my next YA of this book, please query me. It's called The Sea is Salt and So Am I. It's by Cassandra Hart. 
And I absolutely love it. I'm in love with this book. Came out in 2021. It has, and this is hard to do well, I think. It has unlikable narrators. It's three teenagers, so they each have a perspective in the book. And they're all kind of unlikable, but in a way that's unputdownable. And they're very authentic. The reason I love this book is that it is completely authentic to the teen voice. These are real people, and you are in the small main town with them going through these things. It's just fabulously written, and it's my gold standard of YA. Okay, that was a long tangent about that one book, but for YA, I do love contemporary Like I said, rom-coms. Another one is To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Anything by Rachel Lynn Solomon. Again, these are all contemporary. I'm not a high fantasy person. Please don't send me the next Hobbit. I didn't get the original. I'm not going to get the next one. But really, other than sci-fi or high fantasy, I'm open. So you would say there's a mystery that's a contemporary mystery or some sort of thriller, also adventure kind of story. Any of that would kind of... Yes, I love a good thriller. It's very hard to craft them well. The Truly Devious series is a recent series that does a mystery thriller and it's crafted very well. What about magical realism for YA or not necessarily? Yes, I love a good magical realism for YA. I'm not sure that I have an example off the top of my head. Okay, just going through the... But what about this one? But what about this one? So there, now we've said it. Not high fantasy and sci-fi. Just what historical fiction or it seems like there's yes. not. Yeah. I'm seems- open to historical fiction. I'm just not a high fantasy person or a sci-fi person. Aliens scare me. Please don't send me your alien book. It's just not to my taste. And there are several great agents that do high fantasy and sci-fi. I'm just not that person. It's like, oh, they're so specific, but that excludes me. But at the same time, you have to know what someone's going to be able to dedicate themselves to. Exactly. And you want an agent that is going to champion your story. So if that subject is not something that they are looking for, don't query them. Right. And that also saves you a lot of time and heartache from not going back. Yes. (laughs) Yes. There we go. Okay. Well, very good. So. Kayla, we always wrap up with a fill in the blank of I really like it when and using any sort of storytelling now and there. So it could be writers, editors, publishers, illustrators, fellow agents, bookstores, book covers, stories, series, anything like that. I really like when X and I really don't like when X. How would you answer that? So I really like it when writers have a fabulous first line. Oh, pressure. (laughs) I know. Eh, It's so hard to do. But if you can hook me within that first sentence or my opening line, and I think, oh, what? I've got to keep going. It's hard to do, but it's also something to strive for, something I'm definitely looking for. So I love it when writers can have just a fantastic first line. And I really don't like it when, especially picture book authors, query me and tell me that they already have an illustrator for the illustrations or they've already commissioned an illustrator for the illustrations. And this is because 99% of the time publishers choose the illustrator for a picture book. And so really you're just doing a disservice both to yourself and the illustrator. It puts me in a tough position because if I'm looking to represent you and you already commissioned this illustrator, there's kind of pressure for me to then represent that illustrator, at least for that one story. And it's just, 
It's also a hard sell to an editor if you're not an author illustrator already. It's just kind of not doing anybody anything positive when you're saying, oh, look, I already got someone to draw the pictures for me. So please don't do that. Just send me the text and we'll go from there. And just to clarify, if someone is an author illustrator, they could have illustrated their own book. Yes, that's completely different. You are an author illustrator by all means. Send me your dummy. That's completely fine. That's an entirely different thing. I'm talking about picture book writers who will query me and say, look, I've written this great text and I've got this illustrator all ready to draw the pictures. And unfortunately, that's just not how publishing typically works. Right. Okay. Very good. Kayla, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I've had such a great time. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring agent Kayla Chiquello. To find out more about Kayla and what she's looking for, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Please check us out at eltenabam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.